0: So when I was a young man just recently out of college, I was a small-town newspaper reporter. And one day I got a call from a funeral parlor, which was pretty common, uh, to deliver an obituary. And the obituary was for a kid. I can't remember. I think he was about 17 years old. So I took the obituary and just said he had died and um, gave me the details. There was a form you filled out to write an obituary. And afterwards, my editor, who was—and it's important to understand this—my editor was a woman I respected, uh, as far as you can respect somebody. She was kind. She was decent. Uh, she was smart. She was experienced. So I always took her advice about everything. I was a neophyte. I had no idea what I was doing as a reporter. And she said, look, you've got to get a cause of death. They didn't give the cause of death. People don't die when they're 17, so you got to call them back. So I called them back, and the guy admitted that the kid had been in a mental facility and had committed suicide. He hanged himself from a radiator. So I put that in the obit. And a little while later... The kid's mother called me. Obviously, one of the worst phone calls I've ever had, she begged me not to run the fact that the kid had committed suicide. People save obituaries. They're a sort of memory of the person that they've lost. And she said, please do not put this piece of information that this my son committed suicide in the, in the newspaper. So I immediately said, you've got to talk to my editor. This is not a decision I can make. I'm a cub reporter. I don't know what I'm doing. I hand it to my editor completely thinking, well, of course, you leave it out. If a mother who's lost a child, I mean, what? nothing is worse than losing a child. Here's a mother who's devastated. She's asking you a simple thing. Leave this piece of information out of the story. Uh, so, of course, she wouldn't. So I handed it to my editor, who, as I say, was wise, kind, and knowledgeable, and just assuming she would immediately agree, She refused. She, in the kindest possible way, explained that we had to tell the story, Uh, that our job as newspaper people was not to decide which facts were relevant, but just to tell the facts, and that it was going to be a small story. It wasn't going to be on the front page. And it kind of calmed the mother down a little bit, realizing that it wasn't going to be a big scandal. Uh, But at the same time, she was very disappointed. I was shocked. So I said to my editor, you know, I I can't understand why you would do this. What difference does it make? We talked about it till late, late into the night. And she said to me, you know, Every story is part of a bigger story that we can't know, the story of this county, the story of the county we're covering. We can't see that story. We can only see each individual story as it comes in. And so our responsibility is to tell the truth as far as we know it about that story and let the true story of the county unfold as it will. It turned out there are very few stories uh, like this that actually have an ending, but this one does. It turned out, in fact, that there was a spate of youth suicides going on in that county, which it's very possible that nobody would ever have known about if we hadn't reported each individual story uh, as it came in. She was right. I was wrong. And, of course, one of the morals of that story is that your emotions are not always a very good guide about how to re- do something as objective or as humanly as, as, as objective as humanly possible as reporting the news. Which brings me, of course, to this terrible shooting in uh, Broward County, Florida. I always hate these things. They make it impossible to do a fun, funny show. We can't play our song. Uh, and, and sometimes I just feel that the argument about them is always the same and always goes nowhere. And I want to talk about that today, and why that happens. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is the Andrew Clavin Show. Let me start by talking about uh, Ring, which is this uh, security. You know, this is this is a big deal. uh, This Ring thing that this. It's for security for your home, and it is basically a doorbell that has a camera on it. I just got one. I haven't installed it yet, but it is very cool. You know, anywhere you are, anywhere you are, somebody rings the doorbell. You can look, and you can see who is at the door, very important, before you unlock it. We actually have a clip, and this is a real clip, from an encounter this woman had with a guy who came to her door and rang the doorbell, and she is looking at the guy and can talk to him and doesn't have to just open the door and peek out and find out, uh, you know, whether what he's doing. And you can see, that, I mean, it's kind of comical. He's got what obviously are, uh, uh, you know, burglar tools with him. Let's play the clip.
1: Hey, sorry, we're uh, in the middle of dinner. Can I help you?
0: Yes. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? Looks
1: around.
0: Good. I haven't seen you in a while. I, I don't to- know. Who, I don't know who you are. I'm Justin.
1: I, I don't know you, Justin.
0: I met you a long time ago when I was younger.
1: No, I'm sorry. You're in the wrong place.
0: I'm, okay. Much love and God bless for both gods. Uh, an old trick. Every New Yorker knows this trick. Kevin, yeah, yeah, I know you, and you're supposed to supply the place that you met. You say, he was it was it in Boston? Yeah, Boston. That's where it was. And then, then they take you in, and it's an old con man's trick. Look, I don't know what this guy was up to, but I'm glad this lady didn't let him in. I'm glad she had a ring so she could see him and communicate with him before she went to the door. If you get a ring video doorbell, you will never miss a vid- visitor, because whether you're home or away, you can see and speak to visitors on your smartphone from anywhere, and even share video clips to neighbors using the Ring app. Ring also has a floodlight cam, which is incredibly cool. Somebody's creeping up on your house, you press the button, it just illuminates the whole place and set off an alarm. Stop crime before it happens and make your neighborhood safer with Ring. You can save up to $150 on a Ring of Security kit at ring.com slash clavin. That's ring.com slash clavin. And I know what you're thinking. How do you spell Claven? it's K-L-A-V-A-N, $150 off when you go to ring.com slash Clavin. You know, we're not, going to, uh, we're not gonna break today, we're gonna stay on the whole time because I want you to hear this amazing interview we recorded yesterday with Douglas Murray. Uh, Douglas has written a book called uh, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. I read it, uh, it was the first book I read this year. I was blown away by it. I think it's a fantastic book, and it's a book about the elites letting, basically, a civilization go down the drain simply uh, from virtue signaling and not knowing what to do and simply because they're not as bright as the people who are telling them to stop, namely the ordinary people. So you know how these stories go, right? There's a shooting. Uh, it's terrible. We're all brokenhearted. A guy walks in, in this case, a guy walks into a high school, 17 people, I think, so far was the last number I heard. I'm not going to go through the whole thing because the stories are always the same. This was a kid that the FBI had been alerted about. He had been expelled. He was constantly bragging about his guns. He actually posted somewhere that I'm going to become a professional school shooter, slipped through the cracks, and he goes in and uh, and opens fire, and it's a nightmare. And I mean, some of this stuff is caught on uh, on cell phones and videotapes, and you can watch them. What, what we always know is going to happen is immediately the media comes out with one th- Before the facts are even known, the media always comes out. And this is not going to be a rant about the media. I'm not going to do that thing. But I, I do have to show this montage just to remind us this is the way that shootings get covered. This is a six. There's been a theme in many of his remarks after that church shooting in Texas. President Trump said it would be a little too soon to talk about gun laws after the massacre in Las Vegas. He said, we'll be talking, quote, we will talk about gun laws as time goes on. David, there has not been a a very serious public policy conversation about gun control here at this administration, in this White House. President, we will see if this is the one that forces that policy conversation. Uh, this, according to Bill Bratton, the former NYPD commissioner, is... Yet another example of how this country seems to have this sick preoccupation uh, with guns and and it manifests itself into these really terrible mass shootings. This country is not serious about understanding where we fall short of international standards. In this case, we are going to say we're an exceptional country. If you look at other peer countries in places like Japan or Western Europe, they do not have the incidence of violence against children that we have in this country. I read a stat tonight. There have been 18 school shootings elsewhere in the world over the last two decades. In our country alone, there have been 18 school shootings in the last 35 days. And do you believe lawmakers failed you in that moment? Do you believe we can do better than this? Go a little bit bigger picture here for me. 18th school shooting this year. I I keep saying that because it's only the middle of February, right? We are the scourge of the world when it comes to these. Nobody is worse than we are. How does that
1: not make the MAGA agenda?
0: So it's all this stuff, you know, and of course, what happens is, is the facts come in frequently. It turns out there was a law on the books. The guy slipped through nothing that they do would have made any difference, Uh, but they doesn't change anything. They never change their tune. That one guy that you saw, Philip Mudd, who's the counterterrorism expert on CNN, who was making a speech about how Tokyo and Europe are so much better uh, than we are about this. He he had this moment when he just completely fell apart. Uh, Play that clip. I have 10 nieces and nephews we are talking about bump stocks, we're talking about legislation. A child of God is dead. Cannot we acknowledge in this country that we can't, we cannot accept this? I can't do it, Wolf. I'm sorry. We can't do it. Now, now normally I would make fun of this guy because this is CNN. CNN is uh, news people coming on, and their lips tremble and their eyes fill, and that is supposed to take the place of some kind of conversation. Now, I'm not going to make fun of them because I, I'm not blaming him for crying. You know, this is. I'm going to get a little abstract here because I actually don't want to sit around talking about the the shooting, uh, which is always, again, always the same horrible, atrocious story uh, as the last one, but. It, you know, one of the reasons that um, that Plato didn't trust writing is he said you have to be able to look at a man to get the truth. You know, he'd, writing was a new technology, and he basically said, you know, I, it's it's going to ruin our memories, and it's going to dis, uh, separate us from the guy who talks. And the thing is, it's nothing wrong, obviously, with crying, even on the air, crying, breaking down over these dead children. Who wouldn't? That's what tears are for. But the thing that you say and the way that you say it are two separate things that affect one another. I mean, a uh, just a simple example, if I'm trying to explain to our producer Rob uh, that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and he just can't get it, I may lose my temper and say, damn it, 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? And, you know, that 2 plus 2, the, the words that are coming out of my mouth are literally true. The tone in which I'm saying them is suggesting that Rob is dense or that he's, there's something wrong with him. That's not true. That's, so the, my emotions are untrue in that case, and my words are literally quite, you know, bluntly true. That's all. If you just put that down on paper as writing— you wouldn't see what had really happened there, and that was Plato's objection, basically, one of his objections. In this case, it's the other way around. The emotions are quite reasonable, completely reasonable, but that has nothing to do with the words that are coming out of his mouth about bump stocks, and we don't know if there were bump stocks used, we don't know anything about this, or whether any of this would do anything, and that has become the way that issues are discussed. You know, one of my favorite books, in fact, the book, now that I think about it, it's the book that that example, a, a similar example about math, uh, speaking math in an angry voice comes from. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books is a book called After um, Virtue. It's by uh, Alasdair MacIntyre, and it talks about why, one of the things it talks about is I'm just about to reread this book, so it's been a while since I've read it, but I'm but I do remember it because it's it really had a big big effect on me. One of the things he talks about is why our conversations are so um, endless. Why they are so endless? Why they go on? Why we keep having the same conversations over and over again? Abortion, uh, justice. Guns. It just keeps going on, and it gets very frustrated. Let me pause for a minute. You know, here's here's an ad that I can barely do with a serious face. Every, the last time I did it, people were making fun of me because it's for keeps. It's for a thing that's supposed to keep your hair from falling out. What are you laughing at? It's too late for me. All right, it's too late. You know, give me some sympathy here. This this stuff actually doesn't work once you've lost your hair. So you got to get it now, man. You know, do you want to look like this? Come on, come on. You don't want to look like this. Keeps keeps is the easiest way to keep your hair. It offers the only two hair loss products that are clinically proven to keep the hair you have, which in my case, I would just leave a little dab to keep the hair, (laughs) but in your case, it's probably not too late. Keeps is entirely online. It's only $10 to $35 a month, so that's about a buck a day or less on average. This is half of what you typically pay at the pharmacy. Getting started with Keeps is easy. You answer a few questions. You snap some photos. You show them what's going on. A licensed doctor remotely reviews your information and gives you the right prescription, all without ever leaving your couch. Within two to three days, a three-month supply of your treatment will arrive perfectly packaged at your door, you You don't have to let this happen to you. You can stop hair loss today the easy way with Keeps, offering customized treatment plans with only clinically proven hair loss products. Uh, for about $1 a day from the comfort of your couch. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com/clavin. keeps.com slash Claven. It's K E E P S dot com. Ah, yes, but how do you spell Claven? It's K L A V A N. Keeps.com slash Claven for a free month of treatment. Uh, hair today, hair tomorrow is their, their slogan. As as my brother used to say, every man gets a certain amount of testosterone. Some of you guys wasted growing hair. But if, <laughs> if that's how you've been spending your time, you want to hold on to it. Uh, the, the reason, one of the reasons that this book, After Virtue, says that our arguments go on forever is because we ascribe to what is called emotivism, that are our, our, the way of talking about things our way of talking about things has fallen apart, and emotivism is the idea that all judgments are nothing but an expression of preference. So if I say this is good, what I mean is I like this, I prefer it. This philosophy is nonsense, but we have sunk so deep into it that we basically think that's what we're arguing about. We're arguing about whether this guy cries on the air. We're arguing about whether you feel offended. We're not arguing about whether something is right or wrong, you know. And what one of the things that I keep saying, in order to know whether something is right or wrong, you have to know what something is for. Yesterday on uh, on Twitter, a band called uh, Our Last Night tweeted me and said, we we saw you on Dave Rubin, and we're, we, the guy said he's a big fan of the show, he's listening to the show, but he happened to see me on, do an interview on Dave Rubin, and he wrote a song for me, uh, inspired by me, and it kind of cracked me up, because it's this kind of punk, uh, is that what, what it would be called, yeah. punk rock, yeah, that I wouldn't listen to, but the lyrics of the opening come right out of my mouth, so it's, play this thing, and you can hear hear me talking in it. You know, it's pretty good, actually. It's good. It's a good song, and apparently they're a big cover band, and people really like them. Uh, and the video is very cool. It's got a, it gets very weird as it goes on. It's got like this half-formed body on a uh, on a table and all this. But the stuff that I'm saying that I'm saying through that song uh, that you have to know what you're for, and in order for your philosophy to make sense, and in order to know the good. From the bad, you know. I mean, that's that is how you know. Jesus, Jesus said, "Be perfect." They always quote this as, "Be perfect, like your Father in heaven is perfect." But the word for perfect there is the word for reaching your end, reaching your purpose, fulfilling what you're here for. So, what he's saying is that that when you understand that, it starts to make sense of all thing of the things like you know, uh, um, turn the other cheek. What he's saying is, you fulfill your purpose. Don't let other people get in the way of you doing that, um, and. In fact, the word for sin in in Greek is a word that means to miss the target. It doesn't mean to do something bad. It means to miss your end. And so that's what we're really arguing about. And when everybody is saying the same thing, you have to start to ask yourself questions. Because every, every incident, a shooting, a school shooting, a vote, every incident can be covered from a million different angles. So if everybody is covering it from the same angle, you have to start to say, hey, there's an agenda here right? You might cover this, just tell the facts. That would be a good way to start. You might cover it from the mental illness point of view. You might cover it from gun, the gun point of view. Whatever, you, you know, whatever you're you whatever doing, when everybody is covering it from the same point of view, you have to say, why? Why is it? It's because they don't really have a sense of what the gun issue is about. Yesterday, somebody wrote me in the mailbag and asked me about free will. And I was kind of riffing on it. I wasn't talking about it. But, you know, th- there's a guy... Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, I think his name is, he wrote this really interesting book called Sapiens, and he's one of these guys who, like Sam Harris, just makes these absolute statements with absolute confidence that you can't possibly know whether they're true or not. So it's, there's no free will. It was always an illusion. Illusion is always an illusion. It's, you know, religion, religion is just, it's a fiction. Religion or just, just fiction. And you think like, well, wait a minute. This argument's been going on for thousands of years. And then, And then they always use the same trick. They always say, this may make some people uncomfortable. As if, then you feel like, then you feel like you're the jerk, you know, (laughs) But the fact is, it makes you uncomfortable because it doesn't make any sense. The idea about free will that I was trying to get across is that really what we're arguing about when we're arguing is, are you there? Is there a you there? And this is the argument between scientism, which is not science, scientism is the idea that science solves everything. and The idea of spirituality, the idea that the internal, the idea of spirituality is that the internal experience you are having is what is sacred about you, and that internal experience can be mistaken. You can be seen having delusions, but the very fact that you can be having delusions means that you can also be seeing things rightly. If you can be seeing them wrongly, that must be because there is a right that you're deviating from. What the scientists are always saying is, though, this you is an illusion thrown up by physical forces. And that doesn't make any sense to me because what it essentially says is there has to be a physical world in order for there to be an idea. It has to be that every, we know that there are ideas that are true. Two plus two equals four is a true idea. It has no physical body, but you can never experience without a physical body. You can't experience it without my saying it. I can't experience it without the, my brain sending signals to my mind. These ideas only can express themselves in physical form. What makes sense to me is that the physical world is an expression of an idea, and it's the idea of God, and that you, your body, your, your life is an expression of the idea of you, God's idea of you. That is what the spiritual world says. If that's true, then the important thing, the most important thing we have is you and your freedom, your ability to express the who you are and live out God's idea of you to the fullest possible extent, which you can only do by having free choice. That means you're going to make mistakes. That means that some of you are going to do evil. That means that the world is going to be a much more chaotic and unequal place than it would be if I if I can stop believing in you and start controlling you in a way that seems good to the powerful and the elite right that's the argument we're having that is the argument we're having what i say is i say that you your internal experience of you is the most important thing about you the other question i always get in the mailbag is if god is good and all powerful why is there evil same thing there's evil because there is freedom there's evil because there's freedom because the most important thing to god is you and this is you know this is the western tradition that has come up to us through plato through aristotle through jesus All of these guys funneling into our lives and people have been thinking about this forever. And the peop the same people who understood that evil was a result of freedom understood that you should be free. Why do we have guns? That's why. Why do they not want us to have guns? That's why. We want to have guns because we know that freedom means certain things. It means you can't have equality. If I'm free, I'm going to be, you're going to be a better basketball player than I am. I, I can't do that. Unless I stop you from being a good basketball player, you're going to be better than I am. If we have freedom, we can't have peace. We can't have peace all the time because people want to take away your freedom. They envy it. They hate it. They despise it. They want to take away your freedom for your own good as we have watched over these past weeks, we have seen that th- there is a large segment of this population in America that does not like freedom, that will sit there and say, oh, North Korea, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that North Korea lady at the Olympics? Isn't she, win- look how beautiful she is. She doesn't even use makeup. And look how pretty she is. You know, and we say, well, yeah, but they kill people en masse. They impress- yeah, but I mean, they're winning because Mike Pence is evil and believes in Jesus. You know, this is what we're arguing about. We know. They don't like our freedom. We believe our freedom is sacred. We want guns because we know one day they might show up at our house and try to take our freedom away. They've been trying to take it away bit by bit for a long time. We want guns to defend our freedom, and we understand. We're not fools. We understand. You know, this argument where people say we're more guns, less violence, I don't don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I would like to have good people with guns and uh, fight off bad guys with guns. But the point is, we know there's going to be more chaos. We know there's going to be more violence if we're free. We believe, as God seems to believe about us, that freedom is worth it. Freedom is worth all the bad things that happen. So with the fact that these guys go on and cry on the air, I have sympathy with their tears. I cry, too, when I hear these stories. I, you know, they, they break my heart. But we are talking about something else. And if you want to have that debate, then we can start to build the new consensus that this country leads. Needs because our old consensus has clearly uh, disappeared. You know, speaking of the Olympics, we've been watching the Olympics, all these guys who are so good at what they do, trying to win uh, gold medals, but none of them knows as much about shaving as I do. Not one of them, because I have the gold medal in shaving. Because look, I mean, look, you don't get like this without knowing really how to shave. And that is why, even before I started doing commercials for these guys, I have been a subscriber to the da- Dollar. Uh, ShaveClub.com. I got my notice this very day that they had shipped my new razors. I'm waiting. I'm going to be standing outside the door like Snoopy in the cartoons. I'm going to be standing by my mailbox waiting for my razors to show up. It's cool because first of all, it's more than just razors. It's like better than shopping in a store. You get all kinds of things: body wash, shampoo, toothpaste, anything you want. They have this thing that I like, which is a kind of clear gel that you can use. Shave butter, they call it. I like anything called butter and anything with the word butter. And whenever you want, when they come to me, you know, you want your Chardonnay buttery or dry. It's a, you know, come on, butter! Give me the butter. So, so they send you, you pick the kind of razor you want. You, they send you that razor every month. If you don't want it that month, you can press the button that says skip. If you want a different razor, I trade off between the simple two blades and the executive razor, which has 153 blades and takes four days uh, just to shave your head, but then your hair never grows back. So it's good. So you can go for the shaving gold by joining Dollar Shave Club today. It's just five, for just five bucks with free shipping, you get their starter set. And that has the six. Six blade executive razor which trust me you will love this razor it is it is great i mean i only use it on work days that's how that's how much i love it i only use it on work days uh it's a six blade executive razor and you'll also get trial sizes of shave butter body cleanser and one wipe charlie's and keep the blades coming for a few bucks more every month you can get yours at dollarshaveclub.com Claven, and you say, Yeah, okay, you're an expert at shaving, but how do you spell Claven? It's K L A V A N, dollarshaveclub.com slash Claven for five bucks who get their starter kit. Let them know we sent you, all these people, all these sponsors, let them know we sent you so they keep us on the air. All right, we're going to go to this incredible interview, and I'll come out and I'm going to talk about Terminator and what it means in, uh, in keeping with what I was just talking about. It actually continues uh, the thought that I was having. But you, you really should read this book, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray. Uh, it is a brave book. It's a smart book. It's a restrained book, and it's an intelligent book. One of the things that is so touching about this interview is that the first part of the book is very factual and tells you what happened and how this immigration policy has basically put Europe on the ropes. I'm not sure it's going to survive at all. The second half is about what's wrong with Europe and the void at the center of Europe, the spiritual void in the center of Europe. And he said he expected to be attacked over that, and nobody even noticed it. I noticed it. I thought it was a great part of the book. Douglas Murray, is uh, the he founded the former London-based think tank, Center for Social Cohesion, and he's an associate uh, director for the Henry Jackson Society and associate editor for The Spectator, an excellent conservative magazine in England. Here is a uh, really interesting interview with Douglas Murray. Uh, Douglas, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Uh, you know, I just uh, I love this book. I thought it was uh, uh, just a tremendously brave, intelligent, well-researched and well-reasoned piece. And I, I I'm wondering what what has the reaction been? I know in England, uh, people can really take a lot of hits for expressing opinions like this. Have you? Has it been a difficult thing to publish a book like this?
1: Well, in a way, much less than I thought. Uh, I was expecting uh, uh, what in the, uh, a friend described as more witch burning than there <laughs> has been. Um, th- there's uh, the book immediately became a bestseller in the UK. It went to number one on the bestseller uh, charts in Britain, and uh, uh, most of the reaction was was uh, muted praise. There was a little bit of attempt to shut it down, and unsurprisingly, early on from some of the Political left in the UK by decrying it with the usual uh, accusations that are that are used, but but I, I tell you what, the one thing that is striking to me is on the on the, the the element of the book that is about what has happened, immigration, what it has been in Europe and Britain in recent decades. Um, there has been uh, um, some objection to me mentioning it as usual, but it's been picked up. It's been discussed. The bit that has struck me is that absolutely nobody, I think, has picked up on what I regard as being, in some ways, the even more important part of the book, which is the us bit, the bit I describe as the vacuum into which people are walking. And the silence on that, I find find extraordinary.
0: It was my favorite part of the book, and I want to get to it, but I want to make sure that people understand what we're talking about when we get to it, as you did in in the book, in fact. Let's start about, you know, the strange death, it's called The Strange Death of Europe, and the subtitles, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. So let's talk about immigration. What what vision are you putting forward? What have you seen happen uh, through immigration since, basically, since World War II?
1: So I start in the post-World War II period when Europe started to invite in the guest workers to help rebuild after the war. But... What I see is a speeding up of that process, a sort of losing control of that process by consecutive governments in each Western European country. And then the book really focuses on what then happened in 2015, when Angela Merkel famously opened the doors of Europe to the world and added 2 percent of the German population in a single year alone almost 3% to the Swedish population in a single year alone. And I say that's, that's just a speeding up of a process that had long been underway. And it's a, it's a losing control of the borders and it, an unwillingness to really enforce the difference between legality and illegality, um, uh, the, to decide that the law really didn't matter all that much, or it was more comfortable not to enforce the law. So that by the time that we're right up to date, you have this situation, which I describe as a sort of moroseness that we've got into, where we sort of don't know who's in our countries. Uh, when terrible things happen as a result of that, we skirt over them very fast because we don't know what to do. And this, I think, is is a uh, catastrophic situation to be in and indeed a deathly, deadly situation to be in.
0: All through this process, you described the fact that the people didn't want it. The people repeatedly, yes. through every poll, they kept saying, no, please stop. And sometimes the politicians would make speeches as if they were going to stop. Yeah. Why didn't they?
1: Well, it, it became more comfortable for them not to do so. That's that, that's my overriding uh, impression. Uh, by the time the Blair government came in, in the late 1990s in the UK, uh, the the, um, the the immigration minister at the time, It makes this clear. She says says, removals are very um, uh, uh, difficult, both for the person undergoing them and for those uh, enforcing them. And so, it's just easier not to do removals. That's removals of people who have broken into the country, oughtn't to be there, have failed every round of the uh, the appeals process. you know, but even those people—and uh, now, you see, when you get, come straight up to date uh, by uh, the 2015 crisis in Germany, I give an example of something I was told about whilst I was there on one occasion researching for the book, when for once in, I think, 2016 and 2017, for once even the German authorities decided that they had a group of people from Pakistan who had absolutely no right— to come into Germany or Europe in 2015, who said that they wanted asylum. They obviously weren't asylum seekers, they just wanted to have uh, the economic benefits of Europe. And uh, and Germany put them on a plane uh, to send them back to Pakistan, a very, very rare event, this. And the plane came straight back because the Pakistani officials simply said they wouldn't uh, accept the people. <laughs> um, so,
0: yeah, At, So that's... Some of the stuff we're seeing here now in America, we're debating here now in America, we keep hearing, especially conservatives, keep hearing these horror stories about what's going on in Sweden, Germany, the women being raped. Women, You mentioned one story, a couple of stories in the book that I just found mind-bending uh, where yeah. women would be raped but wouldn't report it. They would be afraid of yes. seeming bigoted or, or making it yes. hard for the immigrants. Is, is, is this are these horror stories true? is this actually going on is this oh
1: yeah. You know? oh yeah I mean everything I write in this book I'm very conscious that there's a tendency to overegg some of the things that have been going on in Europe in recent years and and there's also a tendency to shut down the argument. So what I've done in this book is um, through firsthand reporting and from you know a lot of footnoted referenced uh, events names of people, names of locations. You know, I've made it sort of critic proof um, uh, uh, to say what's actually going on and then to say, look, this is what it is. Uh, are you happy with this? You know, I'm not saying here's how you completely change it or here's how you turn it around and say, here is a situation we in, in Europe have found ourselves in. And uh, and as I say, I think that the, the, the striking thing is that you don't need to over-egg any of this. What is going on on the ground that you can see is extraordinary. Um, Camps of hundreds of people living on the streets uh, outside the centre of Paris in the suburbs of Paris, living uh, along the the, the sidewalks in tents. Um, You know, know, it's not that Paris has fallen or anything like that. If you go into the centre of Paris, it's as beautiful and charming as it ever was. Mm. It's just that... If you go slightly outside, this is what you find. It's the same in Sweden all the other places I've traveled across the continent. Life, you know, to a great extent, goes on as normal, unless you're unlucky enough to be a member of the public and not in the highest net worth bracket, uh, in which case you've got to accept that the society you're born into is in the process of fundamentally changing, whether you like it or not. You don't have a say.
0: And, and so much of this, I mean, as I said, the, the, the subtitle of the book is called The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. So much of this has to do with Islam. And yes. the, the terror of seeming bigoted by uh, criticizing Islam as if, it, as if Islam were a race, as if it weren't a set of ideas, yes. and somehow it's wrong to criticize a set of ideas. I, I, we hear stories here of English people actually being arrested for saying disparaging things about Islam, I should ask first if that if those stories are true. Can you actually get arrested or penalized in some you, way?
1: You can. You can certainly be called in for questioning, arrested by well, invited in for questioning by the police. If you were to, for instance, say certain things about uh, the religion, or be seen to be um, um, saying things that are derogatory about a group, I mentioned the Islam thing in the subtitle of this book for a very specific reason. Uh, We've seen all sorts of immigration into Europe. What's striking to me about the Islam bit is that it's it's just obviously at this stage, the bit of the immigration that Europe is finding it hardest to digest, and which, you know, maybe it will not be able to digest it. Maybe it won't be able to accommodate it without uh, having to undergo very significant changes, which I think we are undergoing, uh, or, you know, with increasingly um, very disturbing events going on. but, but the Islam bit is is a serious values challenge. Uh, uh, we are in this very strange dialogue at the moment as a society with certainly portions of the Muslim communities in Europe, where we in Europe say, we would like you, after all of these decades, we would like you to become like us. And a certain portion of this community says, we don't want to become like you. Look at you. We don't want that. And we say back, are you sure? <laughs> We'd love it if you joined us. It'd be ever so nice. And they say, no. And then eventually we get to the crucial one is that they effectively say, what are you going to do about it? And we say nothing. Hmm. That's yeah. the current status of the dialogue.
0: Right, right. And it's, it's very frightening because the, the stupidity of the debate, at least here, is, is so uh, intense that it, it, does seem, it just seems a worthwhile question. Is it possible to have a set of ideas that's antithetical to Western thought? And of course it is.
1: Yes, you're, you're, I can assure you, you're, reassure you that your American debate is positively <laughs> Socratic
0: compared. <laughs> oh, the, I guess compared, I'm, I, uh, compared
1: I, to the discussion uh, and dialogue in Europe. I, and, guess I mean, so. at least you have a discussion and dialogue on these matters. At least you have outriders, prominent figures who are putting their heads above the parapet. In it is a very, very small number of people remotely willing to do that in Europe at the
0: moment. Yeah. I, you know, th- let's, let us talk about this idea of the void in Europe. I, you mentioned the book uh, Submission, which uh, I read last year. It's really one of the best, um, certainly not Willebec's not. best novel and one of the best modern novels I've read in several years. And basically, the thesis of this book, without giving it away, but the thesis of the book is: there's nothing to regret if we leave behind the West. The West is broken yeah. uh, and empty. You you call it a sense that things are over, a sense that the story is over. Yeah. Uh, describe that a little bit, so people know what we're talking about.
1: This is the, this is a really striking thing to me: is that uh, uh, all of these things are things that have happened to us, all the immigration and so on. But what we what we what we reduce to now is what one French philosopher recently described as We had this idea that our values would go around the world. And for a time, we tried some of that. Uh, Then that retreated. And now we're in this morose period of, I wonder if we can hold on to them for ourselves. Mm. Now, um, my view is there is underneath all of this going on in Europe, this sense of, of ennui or what I call tiredness. Though we sort of tried everything, we're unpersuaded that we should continue to, take our own position in any argument. And we've decided basically to be a sort of united nations of the world, a place where basically anyone can move in and call it home. And, you see, I think this sense of tiredness, the void, is exacerbated by the movement of people into Europe because you lose your sense of what it is that makes you you or what makes your society your society, other than that it's a sort of rather nice, sort of migrant camp, a grand migrant camp. And and so all those things we used to talk about, oh, you know, the, the British sensibility or the, you know, the French uh, manner and so on. All these things become, even those sort of glib bits become basically um, passe. They don't really sum up what we've become or what we're in the process of becoming. And, you know, I think that even... We have this endless debate in Britain now, about what are British values? And they're, they're basically reconfigured all the time. Um, and, you know, children in schools are meant to be taught British values. And there's this, this something really, in my mind, pitiful about this, because even even as I was growing up, I knew, I'm only in my late 30s, uh, I knew what British values were. I still do, I think. I certainly got a sense of what being British is. Um... And an immovable sense of that. Uh, but, but, but we've had to change that because if you invite in the world, you've basically got to change your self-definition. And so we have this thing now where instead of it being an identifiable thing you can touch, you can feel, being British is, is a sort of set of rather packed things about, you know, being British is about being inclusive. It, 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 it's never about anything that could keep anyone out. Mm. It's only about things that could keep the widest possible range of people in. And, you know, uh, this is what we're reduced to, and, because and we're trying to include the world.
0: The whole point of a definition is that it excludes other things. I mean, that is almost the definition yes. of a definition. You talk about... But- uh, <laughs> you, you talk about, uh, in, the, in the novel submission... Uh, there is the scene where the uh, protagonist tries to go back and recapture uh, some of the feeling of Christianity. Mm. You write in the strange death of Europe of how the decay of Christianity, the post living in a post-Christian world has, has basically pulled out the last the bottom block of the tower so that you have nothing to base your identity on.
1: Yes, this is, this is a very painful bit in the book for me to write and, and for a lot of readers. I'm just trying to say where I think we are. A lot of people aren't willing to do that. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a believer myself. So I say this not from a point to try to prove my own rightness, but just to diagnose, to define. And my own view is that yes, there's this. We are in this extraordinary void at the moment because we no longer want to sustain the things that got us here and indeed we're doing something which i think is very common across the west and i think in america in particular at the moment which is to sort of assume as, that that where you and i are at the moment is the natural default position of mankind that basically if you went through any period in history we could be we could be in the um you know three five thousand years ago we could be 400 years ago it could be 70 years ago and basically uh, uh, it would all sort of default to where we are now we'd be having a conversation on skype about the same ideas none of this none of this takes into account the far more obvious thing is that what you and i enjoy what what uh, the people we know enjoy is an unbelievable blip at the end point of a process none of which was inevitable none of which was always going to get us here and so the ideas matter. That's why, by the way, sorry, just quickly to go back to the Islam thing, that's why nobody wants to talk about what Islam's ideas and values are because we just kind of hope that it doesn't matter and that <laughs> ideas don't matter and that we've always got here, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the same thing with this desire to sort of basically rewrite our past. We we're always going to be here. We we're always going to enjoy these human rights. And now all we've got to do is nix a little bit of the transgender bits still, fix a little bit of other bits of rights, make women and men exactly the same, and a couple of other really simple processes, and then we're sort of in nirvana. (laughs) And, And I think this is all predicated on lies. It's all lies. Terrible, terrible misreadings, ignorance, lies. But at least let's be honest, whatever we think, at least let's diagnose where we are honestly. And, and as I say, I find almost, well, very few, I get ones of people willing to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I am uh, a, a Jew who became a Christian at the age of 50. And uh, I, I keep reading, yours is is maybe the fifth or sixth book, including Submission actually, that, that puts forward the idea only with Christianity can our civilization stand, but I cannot believe as an intellectual man of the moment, I simply cannot believe. And I think that that is where the crisis lies. I really do think uh, we need a a new Oxford movement that brings uh, intellectual weight to the to
1: well, the that's possible. I mean, it's it's one of the directions it could go in. And there's a number of directions, I think. One of them is that thing of yes, returning to a source. Now, some people, by the way, are returning to the source and see it as the enlightenment. I'm not entirely opposed to that by any means. Mm-hmm. I think that it has its own sort of creation myth and so on. Yes. But there are various ways you can go back to this. What I what I just urge people to do in this book is to return seriously to this debate to recognize the reality of where we are, to recognize the truth of how we got here, and to at least involve themselves in that serious and profound discussion, whether they're believers or non-believers. I do say at one point in the book that that if we could mend what has been the believer versus non-believer rift of recent years and recognize that I quote a former uh, a bishop of Edinburgh, we're, we're basically Christians, whether we like it or not. Right, of
0: course, yeah. Um,
1: if we sort of uh, uh, recognize some of that, you can get towards healing this rift. What I do know, though, is that with all of the challenges we now face in our societies, I just cannot see any way round or through them that doesn't involve an addressing of this fundamental schism.
0: Yes. Now you mentioned the Marcelo Perro book. I wish I was one of the books I read, and I, I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I wish I could talk to you. I would talk to you for another hour. I really could, but uh, I'm out of time. We'll do that one day. Uh, yes, but please, if you're in L.A., please uh, do look me up. And uh, I just think it's a terrific book: "The Strange Death of Europe: Immigration, Identity, Islam" by Douglas Murray. Douglas, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: It's been a great pleasure. All
0: right. I think you will remember that that book actually made Stuff I Like, which is incredibly rare for a piece of uh, nonfiction. And speaking of Stuff I Like, here is Stuff I Like. We have no noise for Stuff I Like, right? I just, uh, (laughs) yeah, we got to have some noise. Uh, So listen, I'm going to talk about uh, two uh, works. Um, One is Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke and the other is Terminator. They're going to be spoilers. So if you think you're going to read these books, you know, I, I'm giving stuff away. There's just no way to talk about them without going through the whole thing. But I'll give you a moment. Turn down your <laughs> dial so you don't have to listen. You know, we're talking about uh, the individual and what it means to believe in the sacredness of the individual experience and what it means not to believe in it. And some of this is becoming more and more complicated as technology goes forward. You know, I have, I've had to wrestle with a lot of questions recently in my life. I, mostly what I do is write you know, that is the purpose of my life. The purpose of my life is to write things down, to make beautiful things. And I write fiction, and I write nonfiction, and I try to write things that will matter to people, obviously. But recently, I've noticed that because as my worldview has changed and developed, I was always a hard-boiled, down-to-earth, realistic detective writer story. You know, detective story writer, I would write uh, crime fiction. And recently, it's become very hard for me to write realistically and express what I Want to express. And that's where you got something like Another Kingdom, which is a sort of hard boiled story that then goes into this fantasy world. And now, you know, I, and I'm wrestling with how to do this. And one of the things that makes fiction so difficult right now is how fast technology is developing. So if you think about the fact that the internet has been around for like 25 years and has changed everything, it's changed everything. So you write a story before the internet and it's virtually you know, out of place. I mean, it's almost like reading an historical novel, and so it's very hard to keep up. And I was looking, I started to look at science fiction, and science fiction has never been my favorite kind of fiction because it deals with ideas too often, and doesn't deal with character, and character is what I think is essential uh, to fiction. But I was thinking about these two, these two questions of what's, this question of where we're going with technology, and these two uh, works, Arthur C. Clarke's, um, Childhood's End and the Terminator film, the first Terminator film. I never care about any sequel. People always tell me Terminator 2 is a great sequel. It is a good sequel, but only the original idea has the core, the kernel of the thought in it that makes it really come to life for me. Now, recently, I was reading this book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. I mentioned him earlier. He's an Israeli professor, materialist, doesn't believe in free will. And he talks at the end of this book, and he has a new book, which is about this, which I haven't read. Uh, about what is going to happen with technology. And he talks about how we are going to evolve out of ourselves, and there's no stopping this. So for instance, we're going to enhance our memory, so that our memory, we might be able to remember everything. We're going to be able to blend our minds, so I might be able to remember your memories. We're going to be able to replace our parts with cyborg parts. We might even be able to live forever, not just immortal, which means you live until a car runs you over, but immortal, which means you live forever. All these things, he says, we're going to be transformed into gods. and. I thought about that, you know, the idea that we would be transformed into gods but not human. None of the things that we think about now, care about now, love now, that matter to us now are going to matter to creatures who do not have the bodies that we have. Death itself has contributed so much to the meaning of our life and to our speculation of what comes after death that it would just be—these people would be unrecognizable as human beings. They would be a new thing. Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke is probably his best book. He's the guy who wrote the script of 2001, A Space Odyssey, is about this these aliens who come down to Earth. They're called the overlords. And they simply give the people of Earth the technology they need to have peace, to develop all kinds of uh, medicines. They basically create paradise on Earth. But what they strip human beings of is their creativity, because once you have an overlord, you don't need to create things yourself. Everything is fine, everything goes perfectly, life, and and people buy into this, most of the people buy into this. But the one thing the overlords never do is they never show you themselves. They won't let the people see them until paradise has really locked in. Now you're living in paradise, and now, like 50 years after they come down, they finally come out and show themselves. Here's from the TV show, the sci-fi TV show, The Scene, where the overlords finally come out and show people what they look like. And if you couldn't see it, if you're just listening, they look like Satan. Basically, they look like the devil. And the idea here is that people had the, the knowledge that they would show up and they turn them into evil people. They're not evil, they're just the next phase. And what finally happens is a new generation of children are born under this uh, regime that have special powers and can link to each other's minds, and they are the next version of humankind. They're one mind, and the old version of humankind, becomes sterile, ceases to have children, and life loses its meaning, and they die out. And that's why the overlords are here. They're there to transition us into this new world where we're no longer human beings. We're just a single mind in keeping with, in touch with the universe. Usually, when you think about Terminator, you think about the killer drones. You think about this idea that machines started building themselves. They started building killer drones. Glenn Reynolds of Instapundit has a piece about this. Uh, in USA Today, it's a, I think Fred Saberhagen wrote the novels that kind of inspired this vi- uh, vision of Skynet. But if you think about it, what Terminator is also about is defending the human. And we might have to defend the human from something more advanced than the human. We might have to f- defend the human from something that seems to us godlike but eliminates who, in fact, we are. And, of course, the classic moment, you remember Terminator. Terminator is about a a robot, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is a cyborg, who is sent back to kill an ordinary woman. And One of the things I love about this movie that the sequels all ruin is she's just a schmo. She's just an ordinary woman worried about her hairdo, worried about the latest rock songs, worried about her dates and all this. And she just couldn't be more ordinary, but she is going to give birth to the hero who is going to fight back Against Skynet and the machines, and the wonderful line at the end—the uh, wonderful line that became kind of iconic. There's so many quotable lines in the movie; almost every line is quotable. You know, "I'll be Bach" and all that, that stuff. But this is the wonderful line that I always love, where the hero finally comes out of nowhere a- after this cyborg comes out of nowhere and starts to kill her. And she doesn't know what's going on, and then the hero comes out of nowhere, and he has this famous line: "Come with me if you want to live." love that scene, is come with me if you want to live. And the emphasis is on live. If you want humanity to live, what happens in the Terminator movie, as I'm sure almost everybody knows, is basically the hero from the future sleeps with this ordinary girl from the present, and they conceive together the hero. And the salvific act in this moment is the act of sex, the act of a man and a woman coming together to create another person. And, of course, that is the thing that is so under threat. You know, all these feminists, I'm always yelling about the feminists, uh, the the left attacking uh, men and women. They attack the fact of men and women, the differences between men and women, the complementarity between men and women, the sacredness of sex and childbirth, why we protect it with so many rituals and with marriage and why we fight against abortion, the very fact of childbirth. We are defending the human race, even... If it turns out the progressives are right and they are, to me the progressives always seem like savages, they always seem like they're regressing into the world of savagery. But in fact, maybe they are anticipating this world that goes beyond humanity. And what we are saying is no, if you save the world, if you make the world a perfect place, but you don't make it a perfect place for humans, what have you done? What have you done? If you advance beyond your humanity, have you actually advanced at all or have you simply disappeared? Have you simply ended the human race? You know, all of these guys, Harari, the guy who wrote this this book I'm talking about, uh, Sam Harris, they all become snake bit by Buddhism. They all love Buddhism. And Buddhism is essentially an, a superhuman philosophy because what Buddhism really says is you don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer. You can rise above your suffering if you simply rise above your desires. If you simply stop being a natural human and rise above that state, you can become something that doesn't suffer. Jesus says something entirely different. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Suffer and live. Come with me if you want to live. We're really in a conversation about the future, because some of these things are not going to be able, you're not going to be able to stop them. When they enhance people's memory, it's going to be to solve Alzheimer's. So who's going to stop them from making that? But if I take it and don't have Alzheimer's, then I'll have a super memory. So, you know, these things are going to come in a way that can't be stopped. But, but we, we can lay the blueprint of where we go we don't have to go where science can go we can go where we want to go and i think that defending humanity is a worthwhile thing and i really do think that's the conversation the conversation we're having is not about how to prevent gunshots it's not how to prevent evil you'll never prevent evil that's the whole point the conversation that we're having is whether or not the individual human experience is worth preserving now and into the future the clavenless weekend is upon us. Go listen to Another Kingdom. I'm still pitching this thing. I got two more pitches tomorrow for the movie, either a TV version or or a movie version. Uh, And we really need you to be there as an audience and to leave the ratings. Got over 2,000 five-star ratings. It is a really, really entertaining story voiced by some guy named Michael Knowles who did a great job. We went long today, so you can treasure this, but the Clavenless weekend is unavoidable. It will come. Survivors gather here on Monday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.